Hey guys, welcome to the Herbal Hour, episode 20, Habits for Health with Alexander Hein. Hello, good sir. It's uh, excellent to have you on the podcast. Um, so today we're going to be talking about habits and how difficult it is to change habits, why it's important to change habits uh, for better health. So you wrote uh, an excellent book. It's called Master the Day. It's quite uh, quite good. I read through most of it and it's very just straightforward information, as I was telling you, very like honest about all the difficulties you had with habit change. And I feel like there's this um, assumption with people that if they're very successful or they're, you know, doing good things that, you know, they were just like born like that or, you know, some they got lucky and, oh, that's not me. But from what I understand, you also had difficulties changing a lot of the habits that led to you being quite successful. How many uh, YouTube subscribers do you have these days? Uh, right around 300,000. Wow, that's pretty good. So, um, so yeah, I guess let's start with the money question right away. Mm -hmm. Why is it so difficult to make habit changes? I think because a lot of it is that people think it's about the right information, mm -hmm. right? People think like, oh, if I just had the perfect plan, that's like one of those erroneous beliefs. Like if I had the perfect plan, it would be easy. If I had the perfect money-making scheme, it'd be easy. If I had like the perfect person to date, it'd be easy. Mm. But those are really, those are scapegoats, right? Because it's like, it's a cop out to think that you just need to get handed this perfect thing on the platter and it's all going to be cake. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that people downplay the importance of their own psychology. Mm. So a lot of it is like, how are you going to have someone change their life when every time they've tried to lose weight for 20 years, they failed? Like there's such a deeply ingrained story that I just can never do it. And so there's like this learned helplessness where people, you know, after a few years of doing that, you just kind of do it half-assed. You know, there's almost no reason to even really commit. Mm, so where, it's like you've tried uh, to make the change and you failed and you failed. And now you have the story of like, I just can't make any changes. And that's it. You kind of like accept that as a way of being. So you talk in your book about uh, how narratives are one of the biggest uh, detriments to making any kind of change. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain this idea a little bit more, what a narrative is and what its effect is in actually making lifestyle change? Yeah, I think the thing we're not conscious of is what subconsciously is being told to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it often starts consciously, right? It's like, oh man, like this is so difficult, losing weight or dating or being in a marriage. Like, oh, this is frustrating, difficult. It kind of never works out. But eventually it becomes like a subconscious kind of story where we begin to expect that <clears throat> there are no good men left, that it's never not going to be a struggle. It's always going to be a struggle to get fit and healthy. Like if I want to have my dream body, it means I'm never going to eat any food I want to eat. Mm. Or that, you know, just like my parents, my relationships are probably going to be like that. Or I'm going to be depressed just like my mom always was. Or you know what? It's kind of true. It probably will be like that unless you do something to change it. Because right. the, the default mode network, it's um, very common in parenting that um, the way your parents brought you up, the way your mom and dad treated you is how you habitually will raise uh, your children if you don't put in any like specific effort or attention. I think it's something adaptational. I was actually thinking about it, um, that we mimic our parents in a deep level. Uh, from like a young age and we kind of ingrain these patterns of like how does mom act how does dad act and then we take those patterns and we use them to kind of how we function and how we act automatically when we're not thinking about it and also for raising children so how do you go in and change that story 
Because it's pretty deep because it yeah. doesn't even seem like a story to most people. Like the idea of like every time I try to find a good girl, it just doesn't work out. Every time I try to find like a good boyfriend, he always treats me wrong. Right. And that's just me. And it feels like it's just the truth that you learned. It doesn't feel like it's a story. It feels more like evidence. Yeah. Than, it is, it seems yeah, like stories. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it is evidence because like we <laughs> cherry pick, you know, or sometimes it is all the case. Mm. I think the big thing is you just look for evidence of the opposite in the world. So like if you think you know, there are no good men left. We'll try to find one person that, you know, f find a female friend that's married or dating a guy that's mm -hmm. a good guy. And then you're like, all right, so maybe there's at least one on earth. So for me, it's never like, I never try to convince myself or anyone else of a different story because you're like trying to devalue their life experience and saying that like, that's not true when they know it's true. So like, you're not going to like out convince someone of that. So what I found is a, a, a realistic or useful exercise is just to have them look for the evidence of the contrary in their life or in someone else's mm -hmm. life. So, you know, even though they may themselves may not be able to be like, um, you know, there are great people out there, or maybe I can really lose weight. Maybe they can find other people like them that have. So, you know, I found, um, like one case study I featured was this one guy that went from being lifelong overweight. He was over 300 pounds, then got a six pack later in life, mm -hmm. like in his late thirties, early forties. Uh, this is a guy who his only vegetable he'd ever eaten in his life was like canned green beans down south. He, like he didn't even know really what a vegetable meant. He thought like a potato was like a vegetable. Mm. Like it was like a healthy vegetable. Mm -hmm. And most of those potatoes were fried. And so like so. <laughs> I wish that was a healthy vegetable. <laughs> I know, right? They're delicious. <laughs> so I basically just, the first thing is I have people look for evidence that there is something else other than their experience like that. Mm. So... Obviously, habits are the foundation of health, right? Because what we do um, most of the time is how our health is. Like, right. it's not, you know, the little bit of cake we eat once a week that makes us overweight. It's actually our daily, you know, three times a day meals. It's our exercise pattern. It's our uh, typical response to, let's say you plan to like work out, but you don't do it. And it becomes this kind of typical response. So how, how do you get out of that uh, cycle? of not being able to make the habit changes, first of all, but even more importantly, how do you know which habits are the ones that you should make the change? Yeah, that's a combination of um, just experience and even expertise of other people. So that's mm. the value of finding like um, someone who has experience in the thing you want to mm. do. But I think, I mean, the most obvious one is really unsexy. It's just that you look at the new year, right? You go into the gym and people are doing like a two-hour workout their first day in the gym. Mm, after they're like, like setting themselves years. up for failure. Right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of people who are like professional fitness competitors that don't even do two hours a day. So it's like, especially with fitness, because the, the feedback cycle, the feedback loop is like you're going to be so sore. Like you're going to be like, you're not going to want to get out of bed. So mm. it's, it's really finding the minimum effective dose. If like 20 minutes of a walk leaves you feeling good, that's what you should do. It's not to try to get like the gangbuster results. Mm. It's to create a habit at a certain level where you like doing the habit. So the, the, in the short run, it's do the habits that make you feel good because then you're building that positive association with exercise or with mm. dating, with whatever, rather than every time you're trying to kill it and you're not going to kill it the first time. That's a really uh, crucial point. Have you heard of uh, Faraz Sahabi? Mm -mm. He is uh, kind of a coach, um, exercise guider and for MMA champions. He works with a lot. I think he worked with, uh, George St. Pierre, very famous uh, MMA fighter who has a strong wrestling background. But one of the main things that he emphasizes is just what you said. Do 
the littlest amount that gives you that benefit, but just do it every day. So he right. says, don't go into the gym, you know, for two hours and kill it because the next day you're going to be super sore. And one, you're not going to want to work out ever again because you basically just traumatized your body to be afraid of what you just did. Because yeah. it might have felt good in the moment, but your body's like, gym equals two hours of pain. And your body is just like, don't do the gym ever. That sounds like a terrible idea. Um, and obviously you can't work out consistently. But what he said is, do do enough um, so that you get some kind of benefit, but don't train till you get sore. Which is kind of against all of the common knowledge of like, yeah, when you lift weights and when you exercise, you should be sore the next day. He says, just do that little amount every day. And then in the long run, when you kind of look at the bigger picture, you actually have more time in the gym. So somebody who just like kills themselves, you know, two hours in the gym, like once a week or maybe once every other week, because it's so it's it messes them up so much. Um, You know, they get, let's say, like four hours per month of of workout time, but somebody who just goes into the gym for like 30 minutes a day in the end, they get way more. Um, if they're doing it consistent, like five days a week or something like that. And when it, when you zoom out, um, they have way more hours. So if it's like in a competitive environment, like let's say you're training to be, uh, like a fighter, martial artist, dancer, or something like that, you're basically training against other people who will also be doing the same thing. So in the end you want, to have more total hours of skill development, not just like more intensity of skill development. Totally. Um, or you could just run yourself into the ground every single day and then when you're 30, you can't even walk around. Yeah. That's also a choice. I mean, you look at the New Year's resolution crowd. I mean, what is it? What's the stat? <laughs> by like, it's like by mid, it's like by March 1st, what percentage is gone? Like 80%? That's not even 100 days. So I've also heard the, the point that the whole New Year's thing is kind of ridiculous from like... Um, I guess like an astrological or like seasons perspective. Cause like, why are you going to start a new habit in the dead of the winter? Yeah. Like you should wait till the spring because that's what the spring is trying to, that's totally, it's so arbitrary. It's so stupid. Actually. I think that's actually part of the reason why it fails. I think if people had new year's resolutions around the time when like life comes to birth, like when everything starts sprouting and stuff, um, I don't know if you've noticed that, but like changes with the uh, seasons and how they kind of give you a different energy. Totally. Uh, I know that's a big thing in Chinese medicine. Yeah. Um, so what's the kind of benefit of those cumulative habits? So uh, I know you were talking in your book about, let's say you're trying to lose weight. You're trying to lose 40 pounds or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if you only do it for a few weeks, it's like you don't even notice that you're making the change because you might lose a pound a week and, you know, three weeks in, you lost three pounds and you're like, this is pointless. Like, I'm not eating any ice cream and, like, this is all I get, three pounds of loss. Like, I'm just going to go back to eating ice cream. Can you talk more on that, like, cumulative effect and tracking that? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing, it always comes back to, it comes back to the longevity of your habits and the frequency. So it's like, one of the reasons for developing habits you actually like is because at the start, depending on what you're doing in your life, you won't see results sometimes for a long time. Mm. Like, okay, weight loss can maybe happen in a week or a few weeks, but building a business can take months to years. You know, um, there are other things you work on. Writing a book can take months to years. And so it's not going to be this instant satisfaction you get from doing it. So you have to figure out what's the intrinsic motivation to do it, which is hopefully Mm. doing a habit you like. Because, I mean, anyone can start something, but the rarest thing in the world, especially now, is people who have the, the grit to see it through. You know, there, there's definitely that aspect of grit, but there's that aspect of the purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, if the purpose isn't strong enough, 
when it comes down to it, it'll be dropped. Like right. if let's say the New Year's gym resolution was just to make Stacy jealous or something like that, yep. you know, that might, that f- might feel you for like two months, but when it gets really painful and you're trying to go for that growth, you'll be like, you know, this isn't even really worth it. And it'll just drop off. Totally. Um, so how, how do you recommend cultivating that, that why, how do you figure it out? And what do you do with that? Why once you know it? So like, let's say, you decided you want to start a business and like, this is why you want to start it. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, visualize? How do you use different techniques to, I guess, remind yourself of that why? So that keeps giving you that motivation. I mean, I think what I've noticed, the most common whys usually come from pain. Mm. I've almost, I've rarely seen them come from like positive, inspirational, <laughs> uh, you know, feelings. It's almost always not wanting your life to continue down the road it's going. Mm. Really common in weight loss, <clears throat> you know, where there's a health struggle really common in business where people just hate their jobs and it's like, it's such a drag for 10 hours a day. I would recommend people, there's an exercise where you just keep asking yourself why until you hit something that's emotional. So like, let's say you're like, I want to build a business. Why? Because I want uh, financial freedom. And it's like, why? Because I want to wake up and like go to a coffee shop instead of an office. Why? Because I hate having a boss. Why? And you keep going until you hit something that actually affects you emotionally. Mm. So like what you may realize is like underneath that, you saw your dad work for 40 years at a job that he hated. And then he drank himself into a grave, early grave. And you're like, I bet my dad would still be alive if he was doing something he really cared about. That's the thing that like hits you. And then wherever you want your reminders on your wall or on your phone. And you're like, you know, if you wanted to, you could be like, don't make the same mistake as dad. Or like remember dad. And the second you see that, you're gonna it's gonna fit it's gonna you right in the, resonate. Uh, emotions. Yeah, right in the feels. <laughs> yeah, so right the that's feels. like that's what you want to look for. Like I think hunger mostly comes out of pain, not hmm. not the opposite. Hmm. So is there a way to let's say for people that don't experience the pain of the habit changes they know they need to make, let's say you know, their health is just kind of starting to decline and mm-hmm. their doctor, if they go to a naturopath, tells them that, you know, their diet's not so good, that they should exercise more. And they basically knew, know what's right to do. Right. But they're not at that pain stage yet, but they still want to make the change. So they have some inklings. What do you do at that stage of the game, pre-pain? I think the big thing is you look for external <coughs> accountability. So the best thing I would say for that is uh, either going with friends or making a bet with friends. So find another friend who's trying to do the same thing and uh, they want to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like one of my buddies was trying to get fit about five years ago and he was trying to do it on his own and he had kind of up and down success. And then at his office, he finally got four other people that wanted to do it. And then <clears throat> every lunch, what they would do is they'd all go work out for an hour first and then they'd all get the same like healthy lunch and then they would eat at their office. So Every single day, you've got that accountability of all your friends being like, hey, are we going to go like, are we going to go to the gym or what? Like, what's going on? Versus if you're on your own, it's easy to cop out on yourself. I've noticed that a lot, actually, with um, taking like group classes, like whether it's like martial arts or yoga or meditation. If you have kind of a schedule and you have some reason to be there, you're like way more likely to show up because let's say you just make a goal and it's like uh, meditate for 30 minutes a day, like as you were talking about in your book and as I and yourself obviously know, that's actually surprisingly difficult. It seems like it would be the easiest thing. Like, yeah, meditate for 30 minutes. Yeah. I'm going to feel great. It's really quick, you know, but like actually try to do that and you'll realize like, whoa, habit change is like you're dealing with your own blockages, your own inner psychology. You're dealing with things you can't even see. You're dealing with your own self sabotage that you can't even see. So going to these, 
group environments where you have encounter uh, accountability is very helpful. It yeah. seems because <clears throat> it adds like another factor. It adds the oh, what will people think of me if I don't show up to this? Right. Which is kind of superficial on some level, but in the game of lifestyle change, you got to use every factor you you can get to make yourself actually make the changes. Totally. Um, or even if even if the goal is kind of superficial maybe let's say some people go to the gym and they want to just like look really good or something there's nothing wrong with that if that's mm-hmm. where the emotion is that's what the motivation should be you shouldn't right. like make some fake emotion of like yeah i just want to be healthy and it's like that's not going to make you go to the gym but if you're right. like i want to look really good so i can find a good partner then like that emotionally will actually make you go to the gym otherwise yeah. you know good luck yeah it's wherever the reactivity is for sure mm. so we were talking also uh about purposes and how setting the purpose kind of beyond yourself is a really powerful motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> ideas like, you know, I'm, I'm making this business so that I can support my parents or, um, you know, doing this for my children or I'm doing this, you know, for my loved ones or for my friends or for my workers, for my employees, these kind of ideas that bring you outside of yourself tend to be more powerful motivators I find when it comes time to quit. Because if, if for example, let's say you're just doing something mainly for yourself, then when you feel like crap and you don't want to do it, it's like you, you can, it's way easier to let yourself down than it is to let someone else down. Letting someone else down is way more difficult and harder to like avoid the reality of. So that day, like, let's say, you know, you started this, this business for like your daughter or something, and you know that she needs like college money and all this down the line. When you're feeling like crap, like you'll remember that and you'll be like, still gotta, you know, still gotta show up because people are uh, depending on me. I think that's a a big factor, not only to lifestyle change, but uh, meaningfulness in life Mm -hmm. is having responsibility. So we tend to want to avoid responsibility, but it's really the only thing that seems to really give fulfillment. And I mean responsibility in the sense that like you're doing something good for other people and they like count on you, depend on you, or they get some benefit from what you do and right. it makes it beyond yourself. So what, what inspired you to write this book? Why this book and not another book? I think just people thought that weight loss or fitness was somehow different from any other goal. And I don't think it is when you look at like the underlying fabric of human psychology, it's losing weight, building a business, being happier, being in a good relationship, it's actually all the exact same thing because it's a reflection of people's character traits, right? So it, hopefully I was trying to communicate that it's a book really about character, developing, the, becoming the kind of person who can have the success in all those domains of life. And so I was, I'm always interested in like, what is the universal law behind all those things? Mm-hmm. So I was like, what is the commonality between fitness and great relationships and happiness and there are common commonalities that keep showing up over and over. And it's really, it's the person, the person's the engine of it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really wanted people to hone in on. Cause if you do one thing, it changes all the things. It doesn't mm-hmm. just change your fitness life. You know, if you're more, if you're disciplined enough, you go from never working out to working out an hour a day, five days a week, you're going to be more disciplined in love and work and all that too. Right. And it, it gives you uh, what they call self-efficacy, right? Which is just a fancy word that means you believe in yourself. Yeah. But you don't believe in yourself because like you believe in yourself because you're sitting and saying like, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. You believe in yourself from actual experience and right. memory of like, that was really difficult and I did it. Oh, okay, I can do that. I can do that for something else. Totally. <clears throat> I think that's <clears throat> one of the major benefits actually of martial arts. Hmm. Why it, it seems like it's just like a physical activity like any other, 
but the the aspect of kind of bringing yourself into a fearful state all the time because sparring you you can get hit you well, you will get hit right. you might get injured it's not exactly comfortable it's very uncomfortable but you put yourself there yep um, and once you're done with it you feel such elation because everything else seems very dull in comparison right it's like in Fight Club. I don't know if you saw, you probably saw Fight Club, right? Mm-hmm. Where he just was like sitting in the office after like his Fight Club that he had underground and um, everything was just like so dull. He wasn't even like stressed by work anymore. He was just like, this is like all nonsense, all this. Like that's not real, not real fear. It's not real emotions. Right. Um, so being that we are uh, going to be practicing physicians soon within uh, the year, when, when do you guys graduate? Uh, six months. Mm. So you're, sure. um, for our listeners, you're in the Chinese medicine program and going to be doing acupuncture and things of that nature. And I'm in the naturopathic program. Um, so for people like us, I think this is a worthy discussion to have. So we're trying to help other people make habit change too. Right. Obviously we need to do that ourselves or else like you can't, you shouldn't be giving people advice if you, I mean, there's plenty of Instagram fakers who are yeah. just like, yeah, you know, do the thing, you know, that you always wanted to do. And like, they're just like laying in bed all day and just like typing that up. And it's just like, that's not real. Right. Um, and it probably won't help very many people because it doesn't have that kind of honesty of like, I tried, I tried, I tried, I failed, I failed, but finally I succeeded. And this is how I succeeded. Yep. Um, so how do you think helping someone else make a lifestyle change is uh, best done? Like what, what's your technique for that, that you're going to be using? I mean, well, one of them is the very accountability of them paying you, mm. right? Because even research has shown that even in psychology, like even a nominal fee, $10, those patients get better results than people who are treated for free. Mm. So there's just the accountability of I'm paying for this. I've got to do something. And honestly, the more you pay, the more, the, the better the results. Because the, the more person. they feel like they got to really do something yeah. to justify the payment. Yeah. So honestly, paying for, paying for a service is a great way of having accountability. Cause you're like, mm. I just dropped what X, Y, Z dollars. I'm not going to show up and do nothing. Like if I'm actually holding them accountable and I'm like, all right, next week, I want you to write down everything you ate. Don't change anything. Just write down for self-awareness. And then they come in and then they didn't do it. And you look kind of dumb, right? It's the same accountability to your friends. You're like, uh, it's weird. And then I'm like, all right, make sure you have it next week. People will more often do that when they're paying you. That's a really, uh, really key insight. And what people will see when they go to a naturopath is, a lot of times um, they might just give general recommendations, but they can give you the tools to actually do the thing. So mm-hmm. like sometimes you'll go in and they'll tell you what you already know. But for some reason, when you have a physician tell you and they're trying to support you in it and you obviously paid, you kind of made a implicit commitment and it's right. way more likely that you'll actually do it. Yeah. So that's I, that's, I guess, the value of you know, help in dietary counseling and, and things like that. Right. Um, there is a field of study. It's a technique. I think I told you about it before. You might've heard of it. Motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. And basically what that is, is how do you help someone make lifestyle changes? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guide them through the difficulties that they're having with it? How do you, you know, define what they even want to make? Um, and it kind of follows um, a s- acronym. Uh, it's, the first one is darn, and then the next one is ors. Darn basically is eliciting the re- like kind of the reasons and the motivation for making the change. So uh, the D stands for desires. Mm-hmm. So do do they want to make the change? What changes do they want to make? Why? Um, a is abilities. How could they make the change? What abilities do they have? What has worked in the past? Kind of like an assessment of like 
what do I got? What tool set do I have to make this change? R is reasons. So reasons um, as in like, you know, for my daughter, for my family, or because I want to be healthy. Um, And then N is needs. Like, do I, what, why do I need to make this change? What are my needs? Like, gotta, you know, pay for my house, but I want to do it in a way that's meaningful to me also. So, um, and then ORS has to do with um, open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. So asking very wide ranging questions and not like pushing things on people. So like if uh, someone wanted to make a lifestyle change, you ask them very general questions. Like, why do you want to make that change? Why do you think that'd be helpful? What are some ways that you think you could do it? And it's actually pretty fascinating, but people have the answers that they need already. All it is is just eliciting. And we kind of do that with ourselves, actually. That, That process of motivational interviewing is something we just do internally if you're trying to make a habit change. Um, then you also summarize it back and there's uh, other factors, but the whole thing, and I think this applies also for internal change is making them give the positive answer that supports them. So for example, instead of, uh, let's say somebody wants to quit smoking or something like that, instead of saying you should quit smoking. So the, uh, when you say you should quit smoking to somebody, mm-hmm. What they automatically do, and this is just human nature, they defend, they go and get into a defensive stance and then they argue against themselves. Mm-hmm. So they'll give you all the reasons why they're still smoking. They'll be like, uh, it helps me with stress. I can't deal with my wife if I don't have a cigarette or two. Um, you know, I love my coffee or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you just made them argue against themselves, against making uh, habit change. Right. Um, but if you give the point, if you, this is like an interesting psychology thing, if you affirm their reasons, they'll start defending the other side. So if you say, yeah, you know, smoking really does help you deal with stress, doesn't it? And then like the instant tendency is like, yeah, I know it does, but, and then they're going to start arguing for the positive change. Now they're, they're bringing out a narrative that actually is going to help them make the change. And I think that little factor is just so crucial. And it's the reason why maybe like 90% of medical professionals aren't successful in making, uh, helping patients make those changes that they need to make like diet and everything. Cause they tell them you should eat a better diet. Stop eating chicken wings. And they're like, well, you know, I want to eat chicken wings because of this and that. And cause it makes me feel good. Yeah. But if you're like, yeah, you should eat chicken wings. Like if that makes you feel good. And then they'll be like, uh, well, you know, I don't really feel good. All right, let's start talking from there and open to keep the thing open. And I think it has to do with at the fundamental level, and this applies internally when you're trying to make a habit change, is being uh, respectful of the autonomy of another person. So like we start from a point where we don't actually know what's right for the person. We have to just admit that we don't know. Maybe it is right for them. There was um, a really interesting, have you heard about the ACE study? Mm-hmm. The adverse, uh, adverse childhood events, where they basically looked at how early childhood traumas can, uh, they lead to all sorts of different illnesses and alcoholism and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to point out that somebody drinks alcohol uh, to an alcoholic level, not because they made that choice, but they're they're predisposed to using that as a coping strategy. And it, in some ways it works for them. So when you try to make someone not drink alcohol, um, you're taking away a crutch that they have, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to replace it with something because right if you just take away alcohol, maybe they'll just go to heroin or something. I mean, why not? They, they still, it's, it has a purpose in their life. And I think our goal as like physicians and also for ourselves is find out what is this negative behavior doing for me? I think that's important to ask. Like, what does this bad habit do for me? 
And you talk about that in your book of like, what was the case? There was this guy who worked a really stressful job and then he just like had to come home and drink beers and eat Chinese food. Yeah, yeah. And that was just the way he coped. Right. Right. So what are some habit changes that you found big difficulty in making and how'd you kind of find your way around those? I mean, for me, a big one was probably not drinking coffee daily. Mm. Um, And for me, it was just one of those things where it's like, it wasn't that disabling. Like it would give me some acid reflux every now and then. And it wasn't like I was even drinking coffee multiple times a day. It was just my GI was really reacting to it. And I found that any kind of quitting related habit just didn't work. And so this, I find the intermediate step, like you mentioned, is like if you remove somebody's crutch that makes them feel well, they're just going to go into something else. But if you preemptively do that, like for me, uh, a replacement of one of those herbal blends like Ticino or uh, Dandy Blend, I think it's called. Mm, I like chicory that, root and dandelion root and things like that, like yeah, coffee alternatives. I think um, like swapping is a really good habit strategy. Mm. So it's like if you're accustomed every afternoon to going out to that coffee shop to get a cookie from work because that's like your afternoon pick-me-up, you should probably still keep the ritual and try to get something a little bit different, but still allow yourself to get like a snack to begin with. Because otherwise that, that craving is going to be really strong. So swapping is one of the strategies that can help a lot. Mm, and finding like healthy alternatives. I know that's a key aspect in the treatment of addiction mm-hmm. is finding like healthy outlets to give the same kind of effects that are different. So like, let's say somebody smokes cigarettes, uh, um, to make themselves, you know, de-stress like after work or when they're stressed, right? Yeah. Well, the whole cigarette, active cigarette smoking has a lot of things to it that are not seen. Um, so there's the social aspect. Maybe they go outside with their coworkers and they also smoke with them and it gives a kind of like bonding aspect. Um, maybe they just, it gets them outside. Maybe, th- I mean, some people don't even go outside unless they smoke cigarettes. Yeah. So maybe just get some si- outside in the fresh air and they, that feels nice and they kind of associate that niceness with the cigarette. Right. Um, and the cigarette kind of trains you cause it does stimulate a uh, dopamine release in the body. So everything that's going on in your environment, it kind of entrains it all together. Mm-hmm. That's why long-term smokers have a really hard time quitting cause they have this like habit that they need to like do something with their hands, like eat a lollipop or something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, so there's those positive benefits in that, right? Like the social aspect, um, maybe instead of the smoking, maybe, you know, you go outside with like a hacky sack and you just hacky sack with your friends. Now you're like breathing outside the fresh air, you're getting some physical activity and it's something fun that you like to do right. and you replace that bad habit. Yeah. What do you do when you fail miserably? When you're making a habit change and it right, it will happen probably so many times that it's actually the reason why complete failure is possible yeah. is because of little failure. Yeah, I mean, I cut it in half and start again the next day. So <clears throat> if the goal was an hour of exercise, cut it down to 30 minutes and try it again the next day. And if 30 minutes fails, cut it down to 15. And if 15 fails, do seven and a half minutes. Do you think it's wise to make up for lost? I just wouldn't even focus on the past at all. You know, I wouldn't even just try to double up. I would just try to start again and just begin over again. You know, so it's like if the goal is meditating 30 minutes a day and you're like, oh, I dropped the ball, then because it's it's really, it's the psychological aspect, right? It's like the psychology of like, oh, I just got up. I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes. It's a long time. That's mm. I just like, oh, I have an hour and I'd rather just like chill. I'd rather like just like put on the news and drink coffee. Right. So if you're like, you have to decrease to the number where you feel like you can easily do it. Right. That's we set very aspect. high goals 
which are really like long-term goals, right. but they defeat us immediately. Right. Because it's like, let's say your goal is to meditate four hours a day. Like, good luck making that your first goal, like from going from zero hours. That, right. Unless you're some kind of differently wired human, that just is not possible for yeah. most people. So the real question is, what's the habit you can do every day for a hundred days rather than what can you do a lot right. in a short period of like time? What's the, what's like the little thing I can do today that I could do that I'm capable of doing that I actually would do right. that would like lead to better life. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about that framework for, for making changes is like doing the little bitest that you could do that you would do that would improve your life. Right. And when you think about it in that frame, it's not so difficult because it's like five minutes of meditation, psh, do it at like the bus stop, do yeah. it while you're standing, you know, at a red light or, or not standing, but sitting. <laughs> hopefully you're not standing at a red light. Right. <laughs> Cause then you're just wasting the crosswalk. Um, but you know, doing like five minutes a day or something like just in the mind, it seems really easy, but it's all about like momentum. Yep. So what role does snowballing play in this process of building habits? To me, that's all it is, is what we talked about. It's like the psychological aspect of you build that self-efficacy, the self-belief by being like, Oh, I've been able to do this five minutes a day. I could probably do six tomorrow. Or, you know, I've eaten one healthy breakfast today. I don't have to get my, you know, pastry and coffee from Starbucks. So it's more so, it's not about getting the results right away. It's more so about building the self-belief. Like I can do it this time. That's like mm. the longevity aspect, mm. you know, versus, cause like all of these, like, like weight loss never ends. Like it's, it doesn't stop. You don't like get to your ideal physique and you're like, all right, back to cakes. Like you got to do this for 50 years, mm. 20 years, 70 years. Like it's forever. Mm. So it's like, if, if that habit you said you're going to do, if you can really not do that for life, great, then do it. But if you said you're never going to eat sugar for life, that's just not real life. So it's like, what's going to be the habit that's sustainable basically forever? Right. That's like the real question. Maybe eat sugar like one day a week or something like yeah. that. Something that you're like, you don't immediately repulse against when you even think about it. Right. Because uh, right now I was telling you I'm doing very low carb and I haven't eaten sugar for, for a couple of days at all. Um, kind of help with the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, but to say that I'm not going to eat sugar for life, that just seems like a ridiculous goal that will not only will it not be possible likely without like severe pain, right? <laughs> but it'll also probably just lead me to binging on sugar one yeah. day. Like maybe, maybe like I'll really grit my teeth and for three months, like zero sugar, like none, not even like a little bit of honey in my tea. Nope. Not at all. Right. Not even a fruit. Right. Then like on, you know, one day I'm just going to like, just lose it when I'm just feeling really crappy or something like that. Yep. I'm going to eat a whole cake yeah. instead of just like being a little bit more reasonable about what's possible. Right. And I think I actually kind of think it's, it's psychological self-sabotage. One of the ways I think that we prevent ourselves from making the changes is we set really high goals so that we can fail. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Like you set a really high goal and you know, deep down you won't actually do it. Yep. And it's such a high goal that you, when you fail at it, you're like, Oh, but it was a high goal. I mean, but who does that help to to think in that way? It right. helps. It helps nobody. Better to make those little changes. Yeah. So, what is uh, what role does visualization play in making these changes? And what's what are some things that you like to do visualization wise for I mean, making habit change, lifestyle change for health, those kind of things? So, this first got on my radar after reading uh, Psycho Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. So, Maxwell Maltz was a a uh, plastic surgeon lived in the 1800s to early mid 1900s. And he noticed that he'd have patients come in with like a, some obvious disfigurement. Sometimes it's just a big nose. Sometimes it's a weird facial thing. Sometimes it's from an accident. And he noticed that they would say like, this is impacting my confidence. 
but a certain percentage of his patients after he did the procedure and made them look beautiful, their confidence never changed. And so he became really curious, like, well, you said it was about me fixing your nose to this woman. Now she has a beautiful nose, looks great, like a model, but her self-esteem was the same as it was before. And that had led him to this concept of the self-image and that the self-image is something that's generated more internally. It's com combined internal, external, but not always by changing the external does the self-image change internally. And so one of the things he recommended was to reset that is doing a series of visualizations where you visualize yourself as you'd like to be. So I've actually found it can be really helpful and really does work where it's like my Monday routine is I go to Starbucks and I get the cup of coffee, I put in five sugars and I get like a pastry. This time every morning I visualize, I go to Starbucks, I get the fruit bowl and I get the coffee. And like I found that by visualizing that it actually does change your life in subtle ways. Like it will change your, the way you view yourself. And that was really interesting because I didn't think you could do it like that. But it really is like your your inner director, like you're directing the movie differently this time. Mm. And like you go through your day, Starbucks, I get a fruit bowl and a coffee. Afternoon, I'm not getting a cookie. I'm going to be getting something else. That's a snack. Mm. And I found that it's a really surprisingly effective way uh, mm. to kind of like future pace in the right way. So you just visualize the action. Do you also, um, I know we've spoken about this, visualize the or feel the emotion that's mm -hmm. along with what it would actually feel like to be that person or yeah. what you would feel like after you actually did that. Totally. Cause that's important, right? For like exercising. Um, in the moment it, it sucks a lot of times. I mean, unless you're doing, if you're doing any kind of like serious exercising, like it's going to not be pleasant. Right. Like if you're at, like you're an Olympian, you're a high level trainer, you're trained for martial arts. Like, if you're not like, oh my God, then you're actually not pushing yourself to the level where you need to be for growth. Like yeah. maintenance and just kind of like running a little bit on the elliptical is like a different thing than like the growth. Right. Um, but like what I like to do is focus on how I know I will feel after. Yeah. Because it's pretty consistent. Like after like a especially challenging workout, like you feel amazing. Yep. It's like a drug or something. You feel like you're on top of the world. And it's not only the endorphins, although it probably is a good portion of endorphins. <laughs> you're actually high. Yeah, <laughs> you're just high in your own body supply. Yep. Um, I think it's just that aspect of whenever we overcome challenges, it kind of like adds, uh, adds like a, you know, adds a penny in our like self-esteem bank. Uh, from a real source that doesn't like easily leave yeah. because if your self-esteem is from, you know, people telling you you're so great or this or that, like that's very superficial. Right. Um, and it, you don't really believe in it on a deep level. Like maybe the, the woman who had the nose change, like everyone was like, Oh, you look so good now. But like her self-esteem bank was so low that like it didn't like do anything for it her. Like she yeah. needed to build that up and then she probably wouldn't even cared about the nose thing. Right. Um, right. But yeah, I think, um, I think that's a good place to to stop it off for now. I think cool. this is a very uh, fruitful subject, but uh, it's time for us to eat some Chinese food. Let's do it. <laughs> Healthy Chinese Healthy food. Chinese food. Chinese. Fried chicken. <laughs> yeah. Fried in oil Chinese food. Mm -hmm. any, uh, any final things for our audience about, let's say somebody is listening to this and they're like, I want to make, you know, a habit change, but I'm not sure what to do. What, what do you, what do you tell them? I think the biggest thing is try to find something that generates enough hunger to live a better life. And if you can find another person, you know, find, do it for somebody else. If you have to mm -hmm. in the short run, you know, do it, get fitter for, so you're alive for your kids. Um, build a business so that you can support your parents or support your spouse, or you can stay home. Try to find something that really 
touches you emotionally when you think of like what drives you and keep asking why, why, why. And then I would just try to find a way to hold yourself accountable, whether it is paying somebody or it is going with friends, like find a way that there are actual consequences for you not going beyond just yourself, Mm -hmm. like let down other people because humans will often consistently do for other people what they will not do for themselves. And that's proven itself throughout time, you know, Mm. immemorial. So, yeah, I think that's uh, very, very sagely words. So what I understand from this and my own experience is first you have to know, you have to have a want to, you have to have a desire to make the change, right? If you don't have the desire, look for a desire, right? Because it's there somewhere. I mean, I think it's inherently in human nature to improve and to grow Mm -hmm. and anything uh, that isn't there is there's something missing. And then find your why of like why you desire it. Yeah. And if you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, as you said, and then expand your why to include people outside of yourself and kind of put yourself in a web of responsibility and accountability to others and to yourself. Mm-hmm. It really is real. It's actually really easy to make lifestyle change through that lens. If you're just like always pushing uphill and you're not sure why you're doing it, like, yeah, you're training willpower. You're training your ability to do things when you don't want to. Right. But that's only one piece of the uh, living a good life. That's only one discipline is only one percentage of it. Totally. There's a lot of other factors that are important to actually sustaining or being happy. You know, yeah. there's high level athletes who you always tell that story. Who was the tennis player? Uh, Agassi. Agassi. He yeah. like he was forced by his father to play tennis, and he became like the greatest. But he hates tennis. Apparently, he always hated it. And like <laughs> he in his biography, he talks about. He told people and they like laugh. They thought it was a joke. And it's he's like, funny. He's like, no, I really hate it. Like, I've always hated it. He's like, I still hate it. Right. And then he became a drug addict eventually. So be like Agassi, but actually like what you're doing. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. All right. That's perfect. Thank you guys for listening to the Herbal Hour podcast. Uh, just want to make another announcement. HolisticPsyche.com will soon be live. I want you guys to check that out. Uh, There's going to be articles on natural herbs for anxiety, depression, insomnia, all the mental wellness things, personal stories of getting to holistic mental wellness, and much, much more. So check it out. It's at holisticpsyche.com, H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-P-S-Y-C-H-E. Hope to see you guys there. We're accepting submissions from anyone in the community. Any stories about uh, struggles in mental wellness, how you reached a good state without using pharmaceuticals or maybe using pharmaceuticals, Uh, essentially all of the natural approaches to mental wellness. Thanks again for listening, guys. If you appreciate the show, like, subscribe, make some good comments, especially on Apple Podcasts. We have a story hour this week. It's going to be the book two of the Iliad. So if you guys want to check that out and next week we have some great stuff planned as well.